makes me long for heaven. It makes me wonder what the singing in heaven is like. And it's as if God gave us a taste this morning. Next week, I'll begin a series for the Advent season. I'm going to talk about various hymns that God has used in the church. And next week, we're going to talk about the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Wow. We got a taste today. And I just got to pause and say thank God for our singers, for Dr. Jewel, for this amazing band. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy. Your son, King Jesus, is worthy. <laughs> we thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to have a relationship with you. You sent your son, Jesus, to deal with the sin problem that we have. Thank you that because of his sacrificial death on the cross, those of us who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We thank you that we don't need a priest to go to you on our behalf, but you've made us a kingdom of priests. And we can approach your throne of grace boldly at any time about anything. And we're your sons and we're your daughters adopted by grace. Lord, we just say thank you. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is the first fruits of our inheritance. And this morning, it's as if we got a taste of where the Holy Spirit will take us in eternity in terms of worshiping you. Oh God, until that day comes when we will be with you world without end, we pray that you would give us a word in the world in which we live in right now. So God, speak through me, speak in spite of me. And Lord, give us ears to hear what you're saying to this church and a desire and a willingness to obey your word. So that men and women who do not know you may see our light. They may taste our salt and that they may smell the aroma of Christ that is upon us, and that you might draw them in to a relationship with yourself the same way you did us. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to also spend some time in the Gospel of John today as well. Now, I am an eclectic person when it comes to music. To pastor a diverse church in the South, you got to not only love gospel, but you got to love the hymns. You got to love contemporary music as well. The jazz, or uh, uh, hip hop. Man, I love it all. And a while back, I lost my... Uh, my black card. 
because I made a humble confession one day that one of my favorite soundtracks is from the movie Grease. Now my black card was returned, but it's something about that high note, that crescendo in the, in the song Grease. And it also reminds me of a group uh, called the Four Seasons. See, I know about Parliament Funkadelic. I, I know about the Commodores. I, I know about the Jackson Five, but I also know about the Four Seasons. Can I get a witness? They sang songs like Big Girls Don't Cry. Uh, if I could do it, I would, but since I can't, I won't. Uh, they sang songs, uh, again, very high, and, and one of the songs they sang was a song entitled December 1963. Does anybody know that song from the Four Seasons? December 1963, also subtitled, Oh, What a Night. Is it registering yet? Oh, what a night. I know I've got millennials in here. You don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, don't go far away. Come back and stay with me. But the Four Seasons and Frankie Valley, they knew what they were doing. And in this song, Oh, What a Night, they said, uh, late December, back in what? Amen. I got a witness. Back in 63. What a very special time for me. And as I remember... What a night. And this is a song speaking of when a man falls in love with the woman who's going to be his wife. What a night. Late December back in 63. And many of us have nights that we want to remember. Some of us have nights that we want to forget. But let me take you back 2,000 years ago to a night that we are called to remember as believers and a night that the devil wishes he could forget. And it was the night that Jesus was betrayed. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, a passage we often read when we are about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And Paul writes to that church and he writes to ours, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. The night that Jesus was betrayed. And so I want to entitle this message today, Oh, What a Night. And I want to go back to that night in Scripture but also in our minds that the Lord may teach us and show us the example of Christ to help us when we're going through night seasons. And when we're most of all, based on this context, experiencing betrayal in our lives. Because the Bible says the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. To be betrayed means to put a person in danger by treacherously giving information to an enemy. Let me say that again. Betrayal is to put a person or even a country in danger by treacherously giving information 
to an enemy. Betrayal is a violation of trust. Betrayal is when you uh, desert someone in their time of need. Betrayal is when you turn your back on someone that you once turned your face toward and you hand that person over to an enemy for destruction. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a picture of who Judas was. One of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 original and initial disciples, Judas Iscariot. But the Bible lets us know that Jesus calls him my betrayer. After they had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, who went from struggling with drinking the cup of suffering that would have him separated momentarily from God as he would take upon his body the sins of the world. In his humanity, he shrank, but in his deity, he rose up and he left that garden different than how he went in. And he said to the three sleeping disciples, Peter, James, and John, rise, get up because my betrayer is at hand. Oh, what a night. So my question is, number one, what happened on the night Jesus was betrayed? What happened? We're going to look at this from John's gospel. Um, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, number one, he, he ate the Passover meal with his 12 disciples. John chapter 13, verse 2. The Passover meal to prepare for that weekend to commemorate in the history of the Hebrew people the passing over of the death angel because of the blood that saved the, the Hebrew people. And so ever since that day, they were to celebrate that moment in their history by eating a specific meal that had so many things that were representative of God's favor in their lives. And here at Strong Tower, we do a Passover Seder um, every Easter season. But also what happened on the night, not only did they eat a meal, but Jesus knew the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. John chapter 13, verse 2. So Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him before Jesus, Judas even betrayed the Lord. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 6, Have I not chosen you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So Jesus was not surprised at the betrayal of Judas. He, he knew it was going to happen, and he knew when the devil put it into the heart of Judas to do it. Another thing that happened on that night is that Jesus washed his 12 disciples' feet, according to John chapter 13, verses 4 through 5. So he washed Peter's feet and Andrew's feet and Bartholomew's feet and Matthew's feet, and he even washed Judas's feet. He washed Judas's feet, even though he knew Judas was going to stand up on those feet and walk out that upper room and go and betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. But yet Jesus still washed his feet. And you may say, wow, that is amazing love. Yes, it is. But it's also amazing love to know that he washed the other 11 disciples' feet. No, they didn't betray him, but all of them would deny him. 
And that's just, again, a picture of God's love that is unconditional even when we are not loving him well. He still covers us in his love and in his grace. He washes us. He cleanses us. He cares for us. Another thing that happened that night after the meal and after the devil entered the heart of Judas to betray him or put it into the heart of Judas to betray the Lord, Jesus washed their feet and he told the disciples also that one of them would betray him. John chapter 13, verse 21. So they had no idea. Again, they're thinking this is a festive moment. They're not even really thinking about the crucifixion. They're, they're even thinking about maybe Jesus is going to set up his kingdom right here, right now, and one will sit on the right, one will sit on the left. They're arguing about greatness in this moment, and they don't really foresee what's coming. And when Jesus drops on them that one of you 12 will betray me, one of you will sell me out, one of you will put me in danger by treacherously giving information to the enemy about my whereabouts. That's why they knew where to find Jesus in the garden, because Judas told them. They, they looked around saying, is it me? Who is it? What's going on? They could not believe it because the betrayer showed no signs of being a betrayer. The betrayer blended in and he looked like everyone else. But then the Bible says that Satan entered Judas or possessed Judas when Jesus gave him the bread. Because Jesus instituted the new covenant after the meal. And in John 13, 27, after Judas had taken the bread from Jesus, the Bible says that Satan entered him, not a demon. No, Satan says, I'm going to do this one myself. And he enters Judas and possesses Judas. So as they're at the Lord's table, instituting the new covenant, the devil is at the table too, possessing Judas. None of them know it except the Lord. And the Bible says that Judas went out and it was night. John chapter 13, verse 30. The Bible says, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Oh, what a night. And so John is being very descriptive as he writes because night here is symbolic of evil, of darkness coming across the land, not only in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. And then the Bible lets us know that after Judas went out, Jesus began to teach the disciples various truths about the kingdom of God. And then when we come to John chapter 17, Jesus prayed what is called his high priestly prayer. So what happened that night? A whole lot happened that night. But ultimately, he was betrayed. Now, when he prays the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because there's something in that prayer that I want you to see. But the first question is what happened on the night Jesus was betrayed? And from John's gospel, a whole lot happened on that night. But secondly, why was Jesus betrayed by a satanically possessed man? Why? Was he betrayed by Judas, who was satanically possessed? Well, Satan knew what was going to happen the next day. This is Thursday night. And on the next day, which we call Good Friday, but which the Jews call the preparation for the Passover, because the Passover would take place on the Shabbat or on what we call Saturday. Saturday. 
So Friday was the preparation day to get ready for the Sabbath day on Saturday. So Jesus had this meal on Saturday night, or excuse me, on Thursday night, and he would be betrayed on this Thursday night because Satan knew what was going to happen the next day on that Friday. So perhaps he hoped, listen to this, that Judas and the mob that came to arrest Jesus on Thursday night, perhaps the devil, knowing what was going to happen on Friday, Jesus dying on the cross, that Judas and the mob, perhaps his desire was that Judas and the mob would kill Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pastor, what's the point? Because you've got to look at it. Why did Satan possess Judas? He didn't necessarily need Judas, but he's going to use Judas because I believe his desire was for Jesus to die in the garden and not die on Friday on the cross. What's the big deal? You see, there were times when Satan tried to kill Jesus, but he couldn't. The Bible would say that they picked up stones to stone him, but he passed right through. You know why that the devil couldn't kill Jesus uh, right there? Because, not, number one, it wasn't the time of the Lord to die. And there's a specific way that the Lord has to die in order to fulfill prophecy about his hands and his feet being pierced. Something's going to happen on that cross that's going to mess the devil up. So he's trying to destroy the Messiah so that the Messiah never gets to the cross. Okay, you don't believe me? Let me just go to a couple of scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It talks about Satan receiving a fatal head blow through the cross. That he would wound the Messiah, the seed of the woman. But in this altercation, as he wounds the heel of Christ, Christ would wound the head of the serpent. So what's the point? A head wound is more severe than a heel wound. So although Jesus is going to suffer in his body, what he's going to do on the devil's head is far worse. On that next day, on that Friday, Satan would be overcome by the blood of the lamb through the cross. Revelation 12, verse 11. They overcame the devil by the blood of the lamb. Okay, but let me hit it more specifically here from Colossians 2.13, that Satan would be disarmed and defeated through the cross. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, it says, When you were dead, believers, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He always tried to keep Jesus from the cross. When he tempted Jesus at the beginning of his earthly ministry and Jesus had been fasting and the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted of the enemy, one of the things the devil did was he says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. In other words, Jesus, I will give you the people 
that you came here to die for. I'll give them to you. In other words, get the people without a payment. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Number one, you're going to worship me and serve me. But I came because God cannot forgive the people without there being a payment. He can't pardon folks of their sin without a payment. So you trying to give me the people is a shortcut. Because you know if I go to the cross, you are truly defeated. So think about it. The night before Jesus was to die on the cross on that Friday and fulfill his ultimate purpose for coming, he experienced betrayal from a close friend. Let me say this again now. It was ordained for Christ to die on the cross. The devil wanted Christ to die, push him off a cliff, stone him, or, or Judas get him in the garden. But God's like, no, 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 he's got to go to the cross to be slain as a lamb. But on that night, Jesus experienced betrayal from a close friend. Now, if you've never experienced betrayal, keep living. And if you've never experienced betrayal from a close friend, keep living. You're going to go through it. I just pray that none of us are the betrayers. Because everybody else is Judas. It's never us. Everybody else is the betrayer. It's never us who turns on people and stabs people in the back and sells people over. But if you keep living long enough, you'll experience it. In John 13, verse 18, here's what Jesus said. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. What was Judas eating right there at the Last Supper? Some bread. And Jesus said, the one who's eating with me, that's not the first time they ate. They ate together for over three and a half years. Jesus fed them, took care of them, led them, loved them, taught them, all of that. And one of the people at his table that he poured and invested himself in, this man had the audacity to lift up his heel against him, which is a sign of saying, I'm going to stomp on you. You are beneath me. I'm going to kick you. I'm going to come against you. And when Jesus said that this betrayal was going to happen, again, it was not a surprise to him. As God, he knows all things. He knew that when he chose Judas, Judas was a chosen devil. But it also says, so that scripture might be fulfilled. Because God wrote about this in the Old Testament and it's coming to pass in the days of Christ. Because Jesus quoted from Psalm 41 verse 9. What is Psalm 41 verse 9? It says, written by David, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus is quoting right there on that night he was betrayed what was prophesied hundreds of years before by David, that someone who ate at the table with me, my trusted friend, is going to lift his heel up against me. And Jesus goes through these kinds of things so that his followers, when we go through similar things, we have an example to follow. Because some of us, when we have betrayers in our lives, they lift up a heel against us, we're going to karate chop them back and lift up a heel back against them. 
You're going to be nasty to me. I'm going to be nasty to you. You're going to give me evil. I'm going to return evil. But that's not the way of a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't return evil for evil. We don't return betrayal for betrayal. But it hurts, man. A twin to Psalm 41, verse 9, is Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, where David writes again, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance, We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. So David is saying, man, being betrayed by a close friend is so hard. It's almost unbearable. Because if it was somebody that I didn't care for or if it was an enemy, I could bear it. But it was you, my close friend, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance, we, we went to church together. We took counsel together. So not only did I feed you, we worshiped together. And you are turning on me? Once again, family, if you've never been through that kind of pain, I, I don't wish it on anyone. But man, it's hard. But let me tell you something. Here's why you get attacked the way you do. Here's why you're going through betrayal from a close friend. And it doesn't even have to just be a friend. For some of us, it was a spouse. For some of us, it was a father, a mother. It was a son or a daughter, a pastor, a friend, someone who's turned on you, lifted up their heel against you, and they're selling you out. But here's why it happens. Here's why the Lord allows it to happen. Because the closer you get to your kingdom purpose, the more intense the warfare becomes. The closer you get to your kingdom purpose, Walking in your purpose, what God has called you to do, the more intense the warfare becomes. Now, the Bible says that Jesus, it was prophesied, he was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. So Jesus was going to die before God created the world, before God created Adam and Eve, and before Adam and Eve sinned and passed sin and death down to us. Before all of those problems happened, God already had the solution that the lamb would die. So God is not a reactionary God. He's a God who ordains everything. Either he ordains things directly or he allows things to happen indirectly. He's sovereign. He's in control. Nothing happens without his permission. And he's the kind of God, according to the book of Isaiah, who knows the end from the beginning. He's not like us figuring out stuff as we go along. He knows what's going to happen, and he's already ordained what's going to happen, which is why in the book of Romans, it says we're glorified even though we're not in heaven yet. It's past tense in the mind of God. It's done. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places, but we are prisoners of time and space. But we trust in almighty God, and and it was declared and decreed that Jesus would come. In other words, he had the solution to sin before there ever was a problem of sin. He's going to be slain like a lamb. So in other words, as Jesus started getting closer to the reason for why he came into the earth, 
He came to die. That's why they wrapped that baby in swaddling clothes. He was born to die. Yeah, he did miracles. Yeah, he taught. Yeah, he fed people. But the reason he came was to save his people from sin. And the way he does that is by dying on the cross. And the closer he got to that, he shrank in his humanity. Father, if if it's possible, let this cup pass. Wait a minute. This was determined in eternity past. But we see here again a savior who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Just because I'm in the will of God, that don't mean it's easy. And he gives us an example because he said, not my will, your will be done. He submitted to the father and he went on and he went to that cross. So the closer you get to your purpose, the more intense it's going to be to keep you from your purpose. Jesus went to the cross The devil tried to stop that, though. And as you carry your cross and fulfill your purpose, the devil is going to try to stop you. And he will use people around you to get your mind off of the mission that he's put on your life, to distract you with people who were friends but are now enemies. Because if you can shift your focus off of the Lord and get it on them, that's called a distraction. And you're tempted to do things or or maybe even give up because you're discouraged because a close friend betrayed you. There's a thing in military called the drop zone. Brother French talked about this a couple of weeks ago about fire that comes at you. The, 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 The more you get over enemy territory and you are ready to either fire at them or drop something on the enemy. The deeper in you go where the enemy is, the more intense the fire at you comes. It's called the drop zone. And so when you are walking with the Lord and you're walking in your purpose, your calling, his will for your life, man, it's not like you're tiptoeing through the tulips. You are flying over a drop zone. And the devil is going to try to stop you. He's going to try to discourage you to put your cross down and give up. And one of the best ways he gets at you is through an inside job. It's not an enemy out there. It's a close friend. And God knows that the enemy is going to use that. Because if you have a broken heart, you're more susceptible to give up. But I got to say this before I give you my third and final point. If Jesus had a Judas... Don't be surprised when you have one or two or three. Now, don't go around calling people Judas because you ain't got that kind of juice like Jesus. But there'll be people who will exhibit characteristics of Judas. And again, I just don't want to be what I'm about to say to you. Because a Judas always has a demon attached to him or her. Number one, a Judas always has a demon attached to him or her. That's either oppressing them or possessing them. A demon can't possess a Christian because a Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. But just because a Christian has the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean a Christian is walking in the Spirit. No, the devil can't possess a Christian who's already filled with the Spirit, but the devil can oppress the mind of a Christian, can lie to a Christian. Can, can feed the mind of a Christian with all kinds of things that are against Christ. 
But then there are people who profess to be Christians, who don't have the Holy Spirit, who are demonically oppressed and even possessed. Mm -hmm. A Judas always has a demon attached to him or her. And a Judas always has an agenda. An agenda. It's an agenda that's not part of the Lord's agenda. It's a selfish agenda. It's not a group agenda that everybody's bought into. It's a personal agenda. A Judas will sell you out for money because it's always about money with a Judas. How many relationships are broken up over money? When the Lord tells us, man, turn the other cheek, man. They want your coat, give them your cloak. Move on. God will restore the money. Don't make it about the money. But Judas is always making about money. How much are we getting paid? Uh, 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 and the Judas, you know, they got the money box. And they help themselves to what's in it because it's supposed to go to help poor people. But the Judases are trying to help themselves. The love of money is the root to all kinds of, not money, the love of it. And a Judas will sell you out for money. And a Judas will always have a mob with him when he comes against you. <laughs> they don't come at you by themselves. They bring a mob because their goal is to destroy you to tear you apart. And a Judas will kiss you publicly while scheming against you privately. I'm going to say that again. That was good. A Judas will kiss you publicly while scheming against you privately. So thirdly and finally, what should you do with your Judas? Pick up a heel against your Judas? Return evil for evil? No. We're going to do what Jesus did. We're going to pray for our Judases. We're going to pray for them. And in John 17, Jesus prays for Judas, or he prays about Judas. Let me say it that way. So we're going to mention the person that is, we feel is betraying us, hurting us in prayer to the Lord. But I want to help somebody today. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to this. When we read this prayer, I want you to see how many times Jesus talked about the people who were with him and how many times he talked about the person who was against him. Because a lot of times we spend so much time focusing on the people who are against us that we don't appreciate the people who are with us. You don't get it. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it for you. I'm going to read it for you. John 17, verse 6, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Well, who's the men? Those 11 who are left with him in the room. So he says, I've manifested your name to the men or to the 11 whom you have given me out of the world. They, who's they? Those 11 were yours. You gave them, who's them? Those 11 to me. And they, who's they? Those 11 have kept your word. Now they, who's they? The 11 have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I pray for for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. 
Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In just a few verses, Jesus mentions the disciples 32 times. Mentions Judas one time. And he doesn't even mention him by name. He calls him the son of perdition. What does that mean? His focus is not on the one who betrayed him. His focus is on God and the people who are walking with God following him. So when you're going through, the temptation is to focus on the people, the person hurting you, to make an idol out of them. Can't get it out of your mind, what they did to you, how they hurt you. But Jesus, who was betrayed that night, says, let me pray for the guys who are with me. You know, over the years as a pastor, you, we got to learn how to deal with people leaving the church. Now, when people leave the church, that doesn't mean they betrayed you, betrayed Jesus above all. It just means they left the church because this is God's church. It ain't mine. And the people of God's people, they're not mine. They're not my sheep. They're his sheep. So you have to learn that going on. In other words, don't take it personal when people leave the church. Because this is God's church and those are God's people and you shepherd who God puts before you for however long you shepherd them. Love people, man. But in my early days, man, it was tough. I would have people leave after I preached the sermon. I'm like, oh man, they left after I preached that sermon or they left after we did this or didn't do that. And I would take it hard. And I remember an older lady saw the discouragement on me after there was an exodus from the church, man. And she saw the discouragement on me and she said, Pastor Chris, I know they've left, but we're here. In other words, don't, don't be focusing on the people that left. Focus on the people who are here and shepherd us. Kind of like when Absalom got murdered and David kept weeping over Absalom. And they had to come tell him, man, look, we know that's your son, but all these people went to war for you. And you better stop crying about your son who died. And you need to come cheer up these soldiers who fought for you. Shift your focus. So, yeah, that old lady told me that, man, and I listened to her, and it helped change my life. I thank God for that old lady. And some of y'all say, where is that old lady? Well, she left the church, too, and I thank God for the wisdom. <laughs> Focus on the people that are with you, man. You pray for your Judas. Also, be kind to your Judas. Be kind. But don't be manipulated. When Judas came back, he told them, he says, the one that I kiss, that's the one. Grab him, arrest him. Why? Because it was dark. Number two, Jesus was not taller than everybody. He wasn't levitating around. He didn't have a big halo around his head. He wasn't a white guy amidst a bunch of brown guys. He looked like everybody. He was normal. His robe wasn't flashier or had more bling bling. He was one of the guys. And Judah said, look, I got to kiss him so you know which one it is. And when he comes up and kisses Jesus, Jesus says, friend, friend, why have you come? Friend. He calls his enemy a friend. And he's teaching us to do that as well, to love your enemies. So the people who come against you, love them. But also don't be manipulated by them because Jesus knew why Judas was coming. 
Yeah, I'm going to call you a friend, but I know what you're here for. So don't be manipulated. But then another thing to do with your Judas, man, move on from your Judas and let someone else take his or her place. So after the spirit had fallen, or before the spirit had fallen, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1, they had to get that 12th spot filled that Judas was in. And so uh, they got that spot filled. And they're quoting scripture from the Old Testament saying, let another take his place. So they ended up getting, I believe it was Matthias, and they rolled the holy dice and it fell on Matthias. And, and they put him in as one of the 12. Let another take his place. What happens is when we get betrayed by someone, especially someone close to us, some of us say, I'll never trust anybody again. I'll never let anybody close to me again. Why? Because of what my daddy did, what my mother did, what my brother did, what my cousin did, what my friend did. And so you walk around thinking that you're guarding yourself against people to hurt you, but all you're doing is putting yourself in a prison. So you need to be free to love again and to trust people again. And so many people are leaving church because of a pastor who hurt them. I get it. I don't want to minimize that kind of church hurt. It's real. But sometimes the focus is too much on the person that hurt us as opposed to the God who can heal us. And we use that as an excuse to not be in fellowship with Christians as if you've never hurt anybody yourself. So let people in again. And then finally realize that your Judas was a part of God's sovereign plan for your life. Nothing comes in your life without God's permission and approval. Either he does it directly or he allows it indirectly. And if there's a Judas that came to hurt you, God allowed it. Why? Because God wants to use it. God is using it for his glory and for our growth. Oh, God, it hurts. I know it hurt my son, but he kept on mission. Stay on mission. Because I allowed it, I'm going to use it for you to grow. Oh, what a night. As one of his followers, you will have a night when you suffer betrayal from people you used to eat with and worship with. It will hurt deeply, but God intends to use it to grow you. Several years ago, I went through one of my betrayals as a pastor. When I was in seminary, they didn't tell me about this kind of stuff that would hurt you. They just talk about, here's how you can grow the fastest growing church. Here's how you can grow this, and here's how you can do this. And, but they didn't tell you about, man, flying over the drop zone and about people hurting you and people you walked with, people you did their weddings and people you went to their house when they were sick, went to the hospital when they were sick, all that kind of, you buried their relatives. They don't tell you about what happens when those people turn on you. People you give things to. You give it to and God is saying, I, I, I want you to make sure that everything you do is unto me and not unto folk. Because if you do it unto folk, yeah, you're going to get hurt. But if you do it unto me, I got you. And I'm showing you how it is with me because I caused the sun and the rain to come on the just and the unjust. In other words, I shower people with love who curse me. So every now and then, I'm going to let that happen to you. And man, we had an exodus up in here, had some folk hurt me, and I called a preacher friend of mine, because preachers, we go through this stuff. And he listened to me, and he sympathized with my pain. But he did not throw a pity party for me. You know a pity party. 
That's when you get hurt, you send out invitations for people to come to your pity party, then you get mad that don't nobody come. <laughs> nobody won't come to your pity party. So he has sympathy and empathy, but then he gave me a word. He said, Chris, God heard you when you said, man, I want to be like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And God didn't even have to hear that because his spirit is conforming you to the image of Jesus anyway. You're either going to come along willingly or you're going to resist what the spirit of God is doing because he's moving you to Christ likeness. And if you're going to be like Jesus, you're going to experience some betrayal. So, Chris, look at it this way. It was an opportunity for you to be blessed to go through something similar on a small level, on a small scale that Jesus went through. So, man, be encouraged. Blessed are you when men revile you and say all matter of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, not exceedingly mad. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. Man, this is a setup for a blessing. So I joined Paul in saying that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So if you've got a Judas, he's allowing you to suffer, but he's also showing you how to respond to that Judas. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. He's so good to us. We look on him. We handle him. We follow him. We learn from him. We breathe him. We love him. And we bless you that you did not leave us without a witness, but you sent your son, the greatest witness of all. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us how to deal with those night seasons. Oh, God, it's not easy, but it's possible with your help. Lord, I pray for anyone who's tempted to seek revenge. I pray for anyone who's tempted to tear down someone's character. I pray for someone who's tempted to walk away from the church or walk away from their faith because of a wound from a friend. Lord, may they collapse upon you and realize they're not alone. They're not the first. They won't be the last. But God, help them. Strengthen them in this hour as only you can. In Jesus' name.